You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. How do I begin talking about this episode's story? As a metaphor, it's either the result of some grand experiment in nuclear fusion, or else it's a base misguided attempt at alchemy, depending on your view of the result. But in either case. What happened is this. Over the summer, I read a bunch of classic noir shorts. Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, James Elroy, the usual suspects. And at the same time, I was studying the great French social and political philosopher Jacques Ellul. Somehow, it all got stirred up in my head, forming visions of a hard-boiled protagonist and the technological society of some sideways-shifted alternate reality. So, on this episode of Lies and Half-Truths, part one of a three-part story, The Propagandist. First, a short break. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Arts Digital. Arts Digital is a graphic design and digital development studio. On their about page, it says, our experience exists somewhere between visual design digital strategy, and pragmatism. Now, at first, I read pragmatism as propaganda, and I thought, perfect, now we're talking. Go to artsdigital.co. That's artsdigital.co. They'll give you pragmatism, if not propaganda. Now, part one of The Propagandist. Red Ellis dropped some coins in the slot and put the receiver to his ear. He held Agent Fulcrum's card between thumb and forefinger and then slid that into the slot as well. The unfathomable internal mechanisms of the video phone whirred and clicked, reading the grooves in the cardstock like a blind man, and spit the card back out. He heard a synthetic bell rattling through the speaker and three long pulses before it was cut off by a woman's voice on the fourth. Fulcrum, propaganda, said the voice, but the monitor didn't light up. It's red, Ellis said. I know where Reeves is. You found him? Already? He's up in the peaks. Littleton. Fulcrum sighed. Well, she said, you're going to have to go to him then, I suppose. Ellis thought. 
He took off his hat, closed his eyes, leaned his head against the glass of the video phone booth and just thought, like the thinking was a heavy burden to bear. You there, Rhett? said Fulcrum. You know the card deactivates the camera function in those public... Yeah, I heard you, Ellis cut in. I just... And for a moment, he couldn't put the words together. Why am I doing this? Ellis heard a click and then a hum as the monitor came on. Fulcrum's face appeared in the square metallic frame of the monitor. Her hair fell over her shoulder like curled ribbons, one of his favorite of her features. But she didn't do her hair for him anymore. She didn't even expect to see him today. She regarded him through the lens with that old, familiar concern. Rhett, sweetie, we talked about this. You need to stay busy. Ellis nodded and said nothing. Fulcrum's voice was soothing. And I need your help, Rhett. You were the best before you quit. Remember? Remember how good you were? This is what you were born for. Stop it, Ellis said. None of us were born for any reason. You know that. You were there. You saw the things I saw. How do you do it, Bree? How do you go on with this charade? Fulcrum took a heavy breath. She started in again. You can't think about it so much, Rhett. You just have to get back to work. Trust me. If you stay busy, it, it gets better. Contract work isn't good for you. It gives you too much downtime. You need to come back to the ministry. If you finish this job, I can get them to bring you back in. You won't have your rank, but you'll have work. Important work, Red. People need us. For better or for worse, propaganda keeps the peace. She was right about that. Ellis knew how right she was. Yeah, all right, he said. Fulcrum smiled. And I miss you, she said. It would be nice having you in the office again. So, so go find Reeves. Do this job, and I'll see to bringing you back on board with the ministry. All right, Ellis said. I'll keep you updated. Then he hung up the receiver and pushed out of the booth into the neon glow of the city street. When Ellis disconnected, Brianne Fulcrum sat back in her chair, a subtle smile on her red lips. A passing colleague cocked an eye at her and said, What are you looking smug over, Fulcrum? This contractor I'm working with. He found Reeves. The colleague gaped. Already? Where's he at? Littleton, it looks like. Littleton, huh? Say, you ought to call over to Vice. I bet they already got a guy up there. Maybe they could handle it for us. One last thing to worry about. Fulcrum thought about this for a moment, her fingers absently flicking through the card index on her desk. No, she said at length. I don't want to wade into all that interdepartmental bureaucratic nonsense. The paperwork alone. We'll just let my guy deal with it. But she pulled out the card for her contact advice anyway and set it next to her desk vid phone. He'll get the job done. She said to herself, eyeing the card, as if defending Ellis to the paper stock. Outside the video phone booth, Ellis slogged through the crowd at the riverfront evening market. Overhead, an automated drone puttered by, belching exhaust. 
Ellis couldn't tell if it belonged to the police, the feds, or the postal service. He shouldered through the market, squeezed past the stalls, to get closer to the river. There were less people over there. He leaned against the handrail and looked out at the lights from the high-rises, wavering in the silver-black current. Across the river, downtown glowed eternal. Spotlights always rested on the Capitol building and City Hall, lighting the marble structures from below so their black shadows stretched high against the rest of the city, making them seem taller, more prominent on the skyline than they actually were. Turning away from the river, he leaned back on the rail against his elbows to watch the people milling around and trying to talk over each other. They palmed globes of improbably bright and fragrant produce from the government-sponsored farms and haggled over the prices of pristine, pest-free, leafy greens, as if feeling around in the dark for those invisible parameters established by transcendent market forces. It was the sort of cultivated mess and chaos that makes a person feel like his fate is open and uncontrolled. Ellis frowned. He reached into his coat pocket for the quarter-full pack of smokes he stowed there. Then he just smoked for a while, putting in some grunt work on his brain. If the people milling around the evening market took any notice of Ellis, which they didn't, they would have seen a man of middle height and build, no longer young, wearing a weathered hat and overcoat, and standing in a suit a size too large for him. He sort of squinted into the distance when he thought hard about things, which he did often, because hard thought was the majority of his job. At one time, Ellis had been a hotshot young academic working for the propaganda ministry of the National Intelligence Agency. He'd written his thesis on integration propaganda versus agitation propaganda, arguing the radical notion that the former was more important, more impactful than the latter. At the time, only one in ten ministry boys had even heard of integration propaganda, but after Ellis's paper, that changed fast. Ellis had helped establish the new agenda. Revolution was long in the past. Democracy didn't need slogans and calls to action anymore. For better or for worse, they had the world their forefathers fought for. Now, they had to live in it. Their messaging needed to be more subtle, invisible even, while setting the palette for what it means to live in this democratic society. The citizens needed to be more than content. They needed to be proud of their lot in life. The hard-working poor with big dreams. Funny, Ellis thought, how all this really undermined the very fabric of democracy. When, like the course of steady waters, you formed men's sentiments, those men vote predictably. Integration propaganda took decades to be effective, but Ellis hadn't invented it. It had developed organically out of public education, among other things. He merely pointed out its importance, helped the ministry to focus in on it, refine their methods. His insights shot him up the agency promotion ladder till he was running his own crew. His team analyzed trends, advised policies, and, most critically, identified and resolved threats to the placid, uniformed landscape of political messaging. And his brightest teammate was Bree Fulcrum, his right hand. Of course he fell in love with her. So smart. So beautiful. But their romance had been doomed almost from the start. The work remained even when the love affair had ended. In those days, every day was a hustle. So Ellis learned to make time to just sit and think about the problems beating down his door. Now he had too much time to think. Too much time to gnaw on his own soul. Bree was right about that. 
He had left the Ministry of Propaganda when he saw the whole system for what it really was, an elaborate machine with human minds and bodies as cogs and gears. This revelation came all of a sudden, like a light coming on in the darkness, so bright you could do nothing but clamp your lids shut against it. But what Ellis saw before closing his eyes was enough. No one questioned the myth that man was God's greatest creation, holding dominion over the earth, even while they all willingly, and without even knowing, sacrificed their own humanity to the machine, the true lord of creation. And where did that leave man? Where did that leave a man, like Ellis? It left him in a world of unfathomable brightness, infinite in every direction, infinite and void. Ellis felt the sweat forming on his brow. These were the kinds of thoughts that got his heart racing. He had to pull it together and focus on the task at hand or else he'd land up in the hospital again. Bree had been the only one to visit him after he cracked up that time. At first, she told him he'd been working too hard. He just needed a break. But the more they talked, the more Ellis could see it in her eyes. She too had seen the light. You're right, she finally conceded. It's all just an elaborate machine, but thinking about it won't change anything. If it's a machine, you at least have a place in it. The machine can't be broken. You can only find your place in its gears and get to work. He repeated her words to himself now. The machine can't be broken. Find your place. Get back to work. He told himself that. As a contractor, he'd be able to maintain some sliver of his own autonomy. This, a necessary self-delusion. He needed back in. And to do that, he needed to finish this job. Finishing the job meant going to Littleton and finding a man who hadn't been seen by the public in the better part of a decade. The greatest folk singer in a generation. The one, the only, Chester Reeves. on the street was Reeves had it in mind to come out of retirement. He'd give a performance somewhere in the city, but mum's the word on the location. Ellis had to dip into his pool of old contacts in the underground to get the skinny. They all said, the old Imperial Theater. The neighborhood around the Imperial Theater had seen better days. Ellis counted at least two factories whose stacks had ceased pumping out black smoke, the pulse of any manufacturing district. No surprise, the soup line stretched around the corner and even ran up against the pool of day laborers standing in front of the train yard, flannel-clad men hoping to snag a shift. But the Imperial seemed immune to hard times. Even the poor want to be entertained. Ellis couldn't remember the first time he heard Reeves perform in that theater, but he remembered the world the folk singer had exploded onto. The labor movement was acting up. Things were getting dicey and the conservative administration Ellis was working propaganda for at that time didn't have a handle on the situation. Then this kid comes down from the peaks with his guitar, the son of a coal miner, a coal miner himself, and that kid gives the labor movement their protest songs. The people loved Chester Reeves. It was a nightmare for the conservative right party. But that was, what, almost 20 years ago? Six or seven years ago, Reeves dropped off the planet. In some ways, 
Not much had changed since then, or times had cycled back around. The world still stomped on the little guy, smeared him into the grease needed to oil the machine. But back then, Reeves's music united all those tiny nobodies getting a raw deal, gave them substance, a body, a voice. Revolution looked inevitable. Reeves was the lit match, ready to set that powder keg off. In a more brutish time, the government might have had him killed, but that would have been just as likely to set off the powder keg as well. So, the propaganda ministry got involved. It was one of the first conscious implementations of Ellis's theories on integration propaganda. Reeves was an idealist. He didn't want violence, so he came into the government fold but secretly. The propaganda ministry gave him a new focus for his music, affirm the values of the working poor, sanctify them. Less a rallying cry, Reeves' songs became a relief valve of sorts, catharsis. When people had a good cry about their troubles, they were less likely to do anything about them. And then, Reeves disappeared, but not before one final performance, the infamous Capitol Building show. At that time, he hadn't made a public appearance in over a year, and the Ministry of Propaganda had labeled him a tapped asset. His usefulness had run its course. Out of nowhere, Reeves announced a free performance in front of the Capitol building. Without a stage, other than the Capitol steps, he brought out all the old songs of discontent, spoke directly to the people, and, like some malevolent prophet of doom, he stirred their hearts to fury. The streets of the government district filled with the flames and smoke of riot. They burned for a week straight before the police finally gained martial control. Maybe Reeves had gotten fed up with playing the puppet and wanted to pull some strings himself. Maybe he had made his fortune and retired into a life of quiet cynicism. It was all speculation, because that was the last anyone had ever heard from him. But now, all of a sudden... Reeves was coming back, to the old imperial, to the heart of the downtrodden populace. What would his music mean now? What new revolutionaries could he spawn? And so the Ministry of Propaganda wanted to find him. They just wanted to talk. With the liberal left party in control now, maybe a new agenda could be set. But Reeves would have to play along, or there would be trouble. Big trouble. The government wouldn't stand for a repeat of the Capitol building show. The program manager at the old Imperial Theater was a savvy beat with hair touching his collar. He wouldn't so much as admit the Reeves gig was on the schedule. So, when he had dismissed Ellis with one final cool look, Ellis went to the foyer, waited five minutes, then pulled the fire alarm and ducked into the restroom. He heard the earnest shuffling of feet exiting the theater. In today's technological society, no one can resist the demands of a ringing bell, Ellis had mused. He slipped into the office and started rummaging. The contract for the Reeves show was sitting right on the program manager's desk. He noted the date of the performance. An advance payment was scheduled to be sent to a Littleton P.O. box sometime in the next day or so. And that's how he figured out where Reeves was holed up. Now, Fulcrum wanted Ellis to go talk to Reeves. That would be simple enough. All Ellis had to do was stake out the post office in Littleton. What he would actually say to the man, Ellis was still working out. But he had to get there first. 
He thought about the license he had enjoyed as a propaganda agent. Back then, he could commandeer a vehicle from the public and had done so on at least one occasion. One of his street informants had even taught him how to hotwire an automobile. It was much simpler than Ellis had expected. Of course, he couldn't get away with any of that now. Maybe he'd rent an automobile to get up to Littleton. But he decided it could wait till morning. He finished his cigarette, then set out to find a drink. The bartender charged him a whole credit more than what he'd paid for the same shot last time. And last time, it had been triple what he would have paid a year earlier. What gives? Ellis protested, even as he handed over the currency. Give me a break, fella, said the bartender. That's vice tax. I don't like it any more than you do. I got half a mind to find a bootleg supplier. Ellis scowled. They'll just take it out of your sails then, he said, and threw back his drink. Paragon Auto Rentals was anything but. The lot had weeds growing up through cracks in the pavement, and the attendants spent most of their time at cards in the office. Ellis rang the bell on the counter to get their attention. One of the men rolled his cigar to the side of his mouth and snarled, Yeah, hold on. The cigar man grimaced at his cards for a few seconds longer, then folded to the cackling glee of his co-workers. He pushed himself up on heavy legs and strolled on over to the counter, where he just looked at Ellis. I want to rent an automobile, said Ellis. No kidding, groaned the cigar man and slapped some paperwork down between them. That's a lot of insurance, Ellis observed. Cigar man turned to go back to his game. Don't forget the cleaning deposit, he shot over his shoulder. I wonder what they used to get the bloodstains out of the upholstery. Ellis mumbled while ticking off boxes on the form. Cute, said the cigar man. Something I should be concerned about? Nah, I'm just heading up into the mountains to visit a friend in Littleton. That got the attention of all the card players. Hope you're packing all Roscoe, one of the men said. Ain't nothing in Littleton but motorcycle clubs and bootleggers. Ellis pulled back his coat to reveal the grip of the revolver holstered under his shoulder. He kept filling out the paperwork. The cigar man stood up. All right, nix the forms. I assume you have cash. Ellis took the gangster's rental car with its dummied up tags and headed north out of town. He hated working like this. Secrecy was always a concern. It stops being propaganda when someone knows you're up to it. When he was with the ministry, he had the authority and resources he needed to operate dark. But out here, on his own, as a freelancer, he had to get creative. He didn't like using underworld resources like this car, but what choice did he have? He told himself he'd report the rental service to the loafers police just as soon as he finished this operation. It'd do little more than rattle the gangsters, but that's not nothing. Sometimes, little things have big effects. When he was with the ministry, they'd often do something as simple as accuse the opposition party of whatever underhanded tactics they themselves were up to. Just a little sound bite on the radio, a second page headline. By the time his party got outed, the public would be bored with the topic. They'd hardly even see it as a scandal. And when the opposition pointed out the hypocrisy, they just ended up looking petty. It was a miracle tactic. He wished he could take credit for it, but he learned it by watching the Reds do their propaganda over in Commie Land. The thought of the old days, 
left him feeling neither comfort nor nostalgia, merely a sense of satisfaction at a job well done, that he had a place in the world. Once again, Bree was right. As he drove, the city's brick and steel thinned out into checkered farmland. Clusters of forest broke up the checker squares. The farther he moved from the city, the farms grew more crooked in their frames as the road began to twist, cracked and faded into a hilly country. Leaning wooden roadhouses sprouted up, often with silver and black motorcycles parked out front, like a pack of predators feeding on their shared kill. Ahead, the peaks loomed ever dark, sawtoothed with black pines. In the foothills, the road wound through hollows, over and beside the wandering river, which split off in various places to form smaller waterways. He crossed several bridges as he climbed into the mountains, all of a uniform green steel frame. Only the water passing below the bridges seemed to change at times rocky, rushing white, and at other times silent and green. Except for the one locomotive across the river, he encountered no other vehicles on the mountain road. That is, until those motorcycles came up from behind, ridden by lawless men with a violent purpose. Thank you for listening to The Propagandist Part 1 on the Lies and Half-Truths podcast. This story was written and performed by A.P. Weber. The music was provided by Doss Verlin, and Josiah Martins wrote the theme song. Meg Weber produced the show, along with me, your host, A.P. Weber. I'd like to invite you to get in touch with us. You can email your feedback to truthsandhalftruths at gmail.com. And of course, we're on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is at APWeber. In particular, we'd be interested in hearing from other writers who want their work to be featured on a future episode. The email again is truthsandhalftruths at gmail.com. Also, please consider reviewing this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found it. Thanks. On the next episode of Lies and Half-Truths, the Propagandist, Part 2, in which, perhaps, it turns out Rhett Ellis is a runner and he's been in Tannis this whole time. You won't know unless you listen. Listen.